You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So Howard, thanks for coming and talking to us today. I think we should probably start off at the beginning. How did you get into refereeing and how did you first decide you wanted to be a referee? Well, I hate anybody to think that when I was seven or eight, I had this long-held ambition to be a football ref. I don't think anybody at that age does. And if they do, then it's kind of strange, isn't it? Um, and like so many other kids, thousands and thousands up and down the country, I was a, a, an aspiring footballer. I wanted to be a professional footballer. I was football crazy, watching, playing, and um, just... Genu- genuinely thought I had what it took, like so many kids, I guess. And looking back, clearly I didn't. I was miles away, but <clears throat> that's what I wanted to be. And I tried hard. I tried hard to develop my skills locally in this, you know, the school team, the regional team, um, you know, uh, rather than boys' team, if you like. I live up in South Yorkshire and still still do. And and um, and uh, on a like a Sunday team as well. Um, I'd become aware of the refereeing side of the game through my dad. Because he he'd become a ref himself when he was in his probably early thirties. He'd, he'd been a bit of a local player and became a play manager. And the referee sometimes wouldn't arrive, attend, or wouldn't be appointed to the game. It was local stuff, so they were short of match officials. And he'd step in and take charge of the game because somebody had to. And he quite enjoyed it. He's got a booming voice, he, he, a big personality. I think he quite enjoyed the idea of being a ref, so he, he took it up, got qualified. And so when I was sort of like in my, um, it's like early teens he was still refing and obviously I'd go and watch him now and again but I didn't want to be a ref and it was only when it was obvious I wasn't going to be a footballer when he came to me and said look you know we've got a course coming up locally to qualify some more people as, a, as referees do you fancy it you know earn a few quid you know we're, we're short of refs and uh, maybe you know you'd be okay at it and at first I was resistant and you know in, in my mind's eye referees were they were all bald old men just like what, what I am now, isn't it? No comment. <laughs> but, uh, but I was 18, 17, 18 at the time, and I, I can distinctly remember thinking it might be nice to have some younger people involved. I might stand out because I'm a bit younger than the norm. Uh, this was in the late 1980s. And, and I said, go on then, I'll give it a go. So me and a guy from school went down um, to the course, six-week course, which we passed, I think, I think the 19th of December 1989 was the day when I passed my first ever exam which qualified me as a ref and I'd never ever blown a whistle in my life it's a bit like it's a bit like them giving you a driving license just because you you know the highway code mm. um I'd done no practical refing and um I took charge of my first game a few 
weeks later. And I'm looking back, you know, to that night in December 89, if somebody had said to me, you know, um, you're going to go on and take charge of a World Cup final, I'd have thought they were crazy. I mean, obviously somebody was going to go on and do that game. It turned out to be me. So, you know, through, there's amazing ways to, 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 to do amazing things in this sport, even if you don't have that God-given talent that you need to be a professional footballer. And when you first started out, presumably you started out local leagues and made your way through up the levels. Was it, I mean, because I'm, I'm interested to know because when a football player, if I talk to a football player and they tell me, I always say to them, was it obvious from the beginning you were much better than everyone else? And they always say yes. Yeah. But with refereeing, I imagine it's a bit more nuanced than that. It's a bit more about experience and about authority and about sort of learning your way through it. So did you did you find that you made quite a lot of mistakes early on and you worked your way through in that, that way? Or was it a case of fitness and keeping up and keeping authority and all that sort of thing? I think I think at an early stage, I think it, it was it was obvious I had some character traits which which made it likely that I'd, I'd make a successful ref. I mean, you know, people would say, well, I think, I think that you've got something there. I think, you know, I think, you know, you, you're pretty good at recognising fouls. You, you've got a calmness about, you know, you, the way you treat people or deal with people, it's, yeah, I like it. You know, I mean, people seem to respond positively mm. to you. So, yeah, it's not like a, a talent that you have as a kid. I, I remember my lad who's, who's 16 now, when I took him to play football, eight, there were kids eight on the pitch who clearly had some talent, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. could dribble a ball, could hit a ball mm. properly at that age, sort of. Um, and well, refereeing is different, you're right, and you do have to develop a lot of what you what you what you do, learn skills, you, you learn the laws of the game, but that's just a small part of it. You know, learning how to handle people, learning where to move, you know, learning to, to just hold your gaze when a tackle's gone in, don't turn your head too soon, don't focus too much on the ball. Just, you know, learn from experience of, of you know, how to get better each time. And, and a lot of that learning comes from making mistakes. Yeah. But the top referees will all have certain character traits which make them better than others um, and I guess those come through quite early and you have some early successes you know you'll, you'll you'll get a couple of decent assessments under your belt which encourages you to keep going and then you might get promoted to the next level I mean it took me 14 years from starting to making it to the Premier League middle mm. uh, to the Premier League referees list I mean so it's not a quick thing and it's a bit and quicker now full time all through that and well, working yeah. full time as well uh, you know with, with, a, with a, like all the guys do until you get onto the championship now they're professional this year right. for the first time the guys on the championship the Premier League guys have been professional for fifteen years, but yeah, you're working full time as well. So it's 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 a hobby. It becomes quite a well paid hobby towards the top end of the game, and then it becomes a profession. But the problem with it is, it still takes five, six, seven years to make it to a, a really good level, and it has to because you have to hone your skills and develop your trade, and you know, and and, and learn from every situation. I was doing four games a, a weekend when I was fit enough to do it when I was when I was young enough when I first started I used to when I very first started I used to watch Rotherham United home and away I was a season ticket holder big fan been to 70 odd grounds watching the club um, through the championship league one league two ups and downs the life of a, a lower league football fan as, as you'll know um, and then I used to play on a Sunday morning for a pub team and I used to referee on a on a Sunday afternoon I was football crazy and then I thought if I'm serious about getting further up the refereeing ladder, something's got to go. And I thought, probably playing. I'll, I'll, I'll referee on a Sunday morning as well, and that'll help me get better. And it did. But there wasn't a promotional route through Sunday football. You had to do Saturday football to get promoted. So I decided to sacrifice going to watch Rotherham away from home and, and, and only watch them at home and refereed every, every other Saturday. So I was combining a few things. And, and then in the end, I just made every Saturday available for refereeing, didn't play, didn't want to get injured. So I'd, I'd do games on Saturday morning, school games, Saturday afternoon I'd do a game more regionally, I'd do two two on a Sunday, and I learned from every single game, I learned from every situation in, in every game, hundreds and hundreds of decisions I've made over the mm. course of my life in hundreds of games. And each time you make a decision, you get a, you get like a feeling about whether that's right or not, you mm. get a, an, an instant feedback from from the players, for example, I don't mean these orchestrated reactions you see on the Premier League, where where players try to get somebody sent off. I mean those gut feelings that you get from a reaction mm. that tells you if you've got something right, if other people agree with you, that sort of thing. And it makes you better all the time. It develops a gut instinct which makes you better at what you do. Did you? Um, so presumably, you remember your first professional game you officiated. What sort of age are we talking? About? How long ago was that? And which which game was it? The first. When you say officiated, mm. obviously I came through the, the, the ranks as an assistant referee first. Yeah, um, I mean referee, sorry, in, 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 the, man in, in the middle. In the middle. My first ever game as a, as a referee in the professional game was in um, what's now League Two. 
which would have been called Division 3 at the time, back in 2000, the fourth tier. And that was between Darlington and Exeter City up at Feetums. Um, that was the first ever game that I refereed in the professional game. I'd been a Premier League assistant before that. I'd been a Football League assistant before that. Yeah. But that was the first ever time I took charge of a professional game. My first Premier League game was three years later in 2003 between Fulham and Wolverhampton Wanderers. Fulham were playing at uh, Loftus Road at the time when Craven uh, Cottage was still being, um, be, uh, not exactly redeveloped, but um, when it was out not, out of use, not being used at the time when they played at Loftus Road. I, I They were big steps. I would still say my biggest step was actually lining, running the line on the Football League. I did a game at Burnley against Shrewsbury Town at Turf Moor. In 2006, I was a 25-year-old. And and the reason it was big for me is because as a, as a mad, passionate fan of a professional football club, a football league club, and, and having travelled up and down the country on coaches, on trains, spent a lot of my own money watching my football club and knowing how much it hurt when my team lost, mm. and they lost a lot, mm. um, I, I knew how much it meant to people. Yeah. I, and don't get me wrong, it matters at other levels. It matters in the conference. It matters in the, in the Southern League and the Isthmian League and the Northern Premier League and Northern Counties Leagues. But this, for me, was really important stuff. This was people's livings you were dealing with. These were professional footballers, professional coaches. And and this is where it really was at. And, and for me, that was still a significant day, that, that night at, at Turf Moor when I first walked onto a pitch as an active match official with a flag in my hand, and I wasn't a brilliant assistant, but with a flag in my hand involved in the Football League, which is what I'd... I'd like coveted all them years, you know. I knew everything about all of. I could, I could name every all ninety two clubs, mm. grounds. I could name them all. You know what I mean? I was that sort of a kid. Yeah, you know okay. I mean? Mad passionate football fan. And presumably, I mean, one of the hallmarks of the lower leagues is this intensity of, of feeling and of, of, of the crowd being on top of you, and the grounds are smaller. And, and I imagine that's particularly felt when you're running the line. Is it something you were aware of, or were you? Did you have training to sort of zone that out, or? Were you just so focused that it didn't it didn't come into play at that stage, even so early in your career? It, it was something you were very much aware of. I mean, you know, particularly like I say, some of the some of the lower league grounds, they're close enough to touch you. You know, I remember mm. coming off grounds with you know stuff on my back. You know, be it somebody who spat on my back from behind, or mm. whether it be a half a pie or something like that. And you don't get training for that. You you learn from your own experiences and from speaking to colleagues, you know, and you learn to develop a thick skin and broad shoulders. And and there were there were places that were really tough. I mean, the far side. Everton at Goodison Park, where the assistant runs the, runs the line there, it's really, really hostile, you know. The, yeah. the fans behind are really, really partisan. All fans are. Um, but, you know, anything that goes against Everton, no matter how clear it is, mm. creates a reaction. It's just know? how they are. It's just yeah. how they are. You know? I mean, I, I, love, I love Everton. I love it as a club. But um, but their fans were really, really partisan and, and still are, as far as I know. And, and it yeah. made it tough. And you had to be really... You had to learn to block it out. You had to learn just to accept that, you know, that reaction would come at certain places on certain decisions, no matter how clear it was, it didn't mean you were wrong. And I'd say to younger guys later on when I became more experienced, you know, expect a reaction. Don't let it put you out of your stride. Don't yeah. make it think that you've, don't let it make you think you've made a mistake just because yeah. you get a negative reaction. Nah, you know, be, be resilient. The thing that referees need more than anything else is mental mental toughness, mental resilience. I mean, because I've been at games at Fratton Park, as we, as we talked about before we started this, about when I've seen linesmen particularly, or assistant referees particularly, getting a lot of abuse to the point where, I, where I'd find it distasteful, a little bit uncomfortable, even though I was passionate about the team I supported. Was, was there any moment where you thought, I'm not sure about this is for me. I mean, I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment here. I don't know if this is, if this is right. I, think, I mean, during the course of my career, yeah, I mean... That's going to happen at some point. All of us will suffer from um, difficult days at the office and you'll, you'll come home. And maybe some of it is because you've not performed particularly well. Mm. Um, you, like play, you like a player. I mean, you know, sometimes you'll see the ball like a beach ball, really big. You'll, the decisions are easy, you're in the flow. And then other, other times, other games, you'll see it like a, like a ping pong ball you know what yeah. I mean it's like difficult to get the right call the harder you try the worse you do yeah. and you go through peaks and troughs like that it's a confidence game and, and sometimes yeah you'll, you'll have a difficult game um, you'll you'll get some stick you'll come home you'll throw your bag in the corner and think like you've just said why are you doing this yeah. you know what I mean there's easier things to do on a Saturday afternoon it's easier going down to Millmore or or wherever it was that I was watching my football at the time and and, and uh, you know 
when I've thrown the bag in the corner on those days, I've probably thought to myself, that's it, I'm packing in. But because I, I do love the game and I do love officiating because most of the time it goes well and because it's difficult and challenging when it goes well it's a great feeling of satisfaction yeah. and because I've got good people supporting me and pushing me each time I've gone back and I've picked my bag back up and gone out and refereed the following weekend and and you know in moments like I experienced in the summer of 2010 when you know at 20 past 8 I'm stood in the tunnel in, in Johannesburg on the 11th of July about to take charge of the World Cup final I'm so glad I've picked my bag back up each time even though I had some stick from somebody yeah. some distasteful stuff stick like you've mm. talked about which does happen I'm glad I've gone back and picked my bag back up because mm. it means I'm going to referee in the World Cup final mm. rather than watch it at home which would have been the case if I'd have packed in at that point so yeah there are times when you feel like quitting but, um, but you know, they're few and far between so let's fast forward to, to you becoming a Premier League referee then and as I mentioned to you earlier the Football Ramble has a book out as well this week and as I didn't mention this to you because I wanted to say it to you now I do a re- chapter on referees and I went out with one of my colleagues and we tried the Premier League referees fitness test. Yeah, and it was obviously astonishingly difficult and you know hilariously inept and all that other stuff. One thing that I found particularly fascinating about it is that there are men a lot older than me doing that on a monthly basis, I think. And I think they've even made it even harder since I did it. You've got to be astonishingly fast and astonishingly quick and fit to be a top-level referee. And I think that that's, that's underplayed in the current media. It's underplayed in how important, how fit, and how quick you guys are. And did you find it difficult to keep the fitness up? I, I didn't find it difficult um, on on the really on the back of the fact that we were professional. So even though I came into refereeing as a hobby and had a full time job, and then when I made it onto the Premier League, I was able to reduce my hours. I'd, I'd, I'd become a police officer, and, and I was able to reduce my hours to half time, and then I actually took a career break, a five-year break. So I was able to focus my training um, and do it properly. And we had sports scientists. So so there's two full-time sports scientists, fitness coaches that look after the referees. Mm. Um, so it's all very well well supported by professional people. And they would give you a schedule every week based on your own match commitments. And you'd know what to be doing on what particular day based on a, a percentage of your heart rate max. So it was spoon-fed to you, and you just followed it out. You recorded it onto your onto your heart rate monitor. You sent it in so he could check that you were doing the right stuff. It made life easy. Um, but that fitness level you're talking about, it has to be that way because in the last minute of a big game, um, a tiring, physically demanding game, you might have to make a, a, a big call in one penalty area. And then in the space of 20 seconds, you might have to make another equally big call at the other end. Mm in the other penalty area and you've got to get from one to the other in the last minute after a difficult game without thinking about your legs or your lungs you've just got to be thinking about the decision you're going to be making or that you need to make all those cognitive skills need to be based in in the decision rather than thinking about the pain that you're suffering in your legs or your lungs and you're right there's people at 45 there's people at 50 refereeing you know, the, the age limit has gone it has got harder uh, over the years it's got much harder um, but like I say, it's it's because you need that level of fitness where you don't have to worry about how you're going to get from A to B. You've got to be naturally, you've got to be able to do it automatically. I've, I finished refereeing in 2014. I couldn't pass the test now. And I still train. I still do some mm. recreational training. Mm. But because I'm not at that level anymore, because I'm not following the plans, because I'm not following the diets, just because I've I've turned down my professionalism in that respect, then... There's no way I could do the fitness test myself. It's fascinating to me because we always hear about players getting half, you know, half an hour here or 60 minutes there to get their match fitness back, and if they start to tire, they'll be substituted off. Obviously, no one really ever says that about referees. It's unheard of, really, unless there's a proper injury of a referee to be replaced or anything like that. So, and, and of course, your physical fitness is linked to your mental fitness and your ability to make the right decision on the pressure and all that stuff. I, I came away from trying to do that test, and it sounds obvious now, but thinking they're they're professional athletes. They're absolutely professional athletes, and I don't. I don't think the referees get the respect they deserve on that basis. I think. I think. Um, <clears throat> I think the the fitness levels are, are high. There's no doubt about it. And you're right. The, the test has got even harder lately. And you know, uh, even though you know people look at me now and say, "Oh, you've not changed. You know, you've not put any weight on." But my fitness levels have really declined yeah. uh, because I'm not doing that sort of high level training, that supervised training. If you compare our fitness levels to those of the players. You talk about referees not getting the benefits of, of, of the credit for being fit. Actually, players are, I think players are the same. But if you speak to an, an average person who, who follows various sports and talks about fit 
fit sports people, they would not put footballers, mm. I don't think, in the top sort of like echelons of, 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 of which ones are fit and which ones aren't. They, they talk about some of the Olympians that we've oh, seen. Tour they de might, France. Like they that. might talk about yeah. the Tour de France. They might, might talk about even some rugby players. I don't know. But I can tell you the footballers are mega fit. I, we, we're in a situation now where the referees in the Premier League will visit a club pre-season and then they'll go to another club mid-season and they have the option to train with them mm. on a morning and then they speak to the players and you know it's about it's all about trying to gain better understanding of each other's roles and uh, and I went to Sunderland in my last season and and they were training I trained with them and um they were doing some 40 meter shuttles and um I thought I'll give it a go and to my right hand side was Titus Bramble and I thought Titus a bit of a bit of a lump in you know yeah, what I mean he's yeah. not the sort of guy you'd think would be that fit I thought yeah. I can probably take him you know what I mean yeah. I was I was uh, a lot older than him obviously but I thought you know I'm pretty fit here I'm pretty strong I couldn't live with him honestly no. I was so so far behind and, and at the very end of the row of people was one of the coaches Steve Guppy oh, yeah. same age as me I remember Steve used to be at Leicester and me and Steve were about the same level. <laughs> yeah, he was nippy in the day, though. Steve. Well, he was a fit lad, fit lad. But, yeah. but, but me and Steve had the same level. The players were miles ahead. And, mm. and that was a realisation for me, just about the fitness levels that these, these guys have got and, and have to have. You know what I mean? If, if you're playing a pressing game like, um, you know, like Spurs, Liverpool, my God, I mean, you can't do that for 90 minutes, can you? Mm. You know, the fitness mm. levels that you need to do that, wow, it's, it's, it's pretty high. So I think the players need... Recognition as well for just how fit they are. Well, I can't do any of it for any minutes. I mean, but I do, I do, I do take the point. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at MintMobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the Premier League, of course, the, the scrutiny is, is a lot higher and, and you're on the, on the end of a lot of media attention and stuff like that. And, and I suppose writing a book as you have now, it must feel quite nice to, to be able to, it must be quite freeing to be able to actually have your say as well because you're so well... Um, restrained throughout your professional career that you're not really able to say anything at all and, and people talk about should referees be on TV to explain their decisions and stuff but now since you've moved into the media you're able to do that it must be a nice break for you to be have that opportunity yeah I mean I, I've personally found it a little bit frustrating at times that we weren't able to speak about it's a, it's, it's a you would have been in favour of being able to do that would you yeah it's, it's, it's a tricky balance isn't it because the game is all about the players and then it's about the fans. So the players create the the, the spectacle. The fans create the atmosphere. Uh, and then you need other people to to assist in making that happen, don't you? So the referees are some the referee is somebody who, who assists in, in in helping that that event to happen. Um, but even though I'm quite happy when nobody's speaking about me and 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 
nobody's commenting about a performance, no matter how well I've done, that's absolutely fine. But a lot of people do want to speak about you when things go wrong, and they do want to focus on you. Look at Anthony Taylor this this, mm. uh, this past uh, past few days when he refereed Liverpool versus Manchester United, and there's so much talk before he even blows a whistle, mm. and then no talk afterwards because he doesn't mess up. And I went to Twitter and, and mentioned that I said, you know, nobody will speak about him now, even though he was under unfair and unnecessary, significant pressure because he's not messed up. And, they only would have spoke about him if he had a messed up. Um, I think there's there's some there's some ground to, that could be gained in 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 just giving, I suppose, the officials officials an opportunity at well timed points just to speak out now and again. But in that example you gave about Anthony Taylor, he wouldn't have been able to say anything in the lead up to the game that would have made his situation better, though, would he? In no. that particular example. No, and, and and he wouldn't have wanted to. And the, the bottom line with that was that nobody should have been speaking about him. No. You know, it, and Mourinho will probably face a fine for that, won't he? So I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had a situation in 2011 where Chelsea played Manchester United, and both Carlo Ancelotti and Sir Alex Ferguson made comments about my appointment, which wasn't a negative comments, but because they spoke about me, they were fined, and and those rules were in place for a good reason to to try to avoid increasing pressure on match officials before the game, and everybody knows they exist. And what Mourinho said in itself wasn't that inflammatory, wasn't really inflammatory at all. But it did oxygenate the argument and he, he would know that. So you're better off when nobody speaks. I just think that now and again, it would be useful for people to have an insight into a referee's decision-making or the an insight into them as human beings because that would make it, I guess, obvious that they do care about the game. Mm. I, I used to hate the idea that people thought we'd make a decision, get in the car, drive home and forget all about it. Yeah. Nothing could be further from the truth. We care massively about what we do, and of course, we've got personal pride at stake as well. I, I guess if you said, you know, the referee should be available for a press conference post-match, the only time he'd ever be asked a question is when it was apparent that he'd made a mistake or done something wrong. So I understand the difficulties in giving them a platform because it would generally only ever be utilised when there was a negative connotation about what they'd done. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's unlikely to invite you in to say well done. And no, of course not. Yeah. And you would expect that. But whereas players, managers, they have to face the music when they do something wrong. Mm. They also get the opportunity to speak about something they've done well. You know, what a great game, what a great hat-trick, what a great substitution, Yeah, how tactically well you did on a particular game. Uh, whereas in refereeing, it would just really, I guess, come down to a mistake. On the odd occasion, it might be about clarification. Mm. It might be about... Did you used to see that a lot? Did you used to see punditry when you were refereeing at the top level? Did you used to see punditry post the weekend where they would be um, misinterpreting or just getting wrong the laws of the game? Yeah, of and you weren't able to say anything because of that? Of, of, of course, sometimes they would, yeah, sometimes pundits would get something wrong. Or, I mean, sometimes it would just be down to a matter of opinion. Yeah. I, I used to dislike the fact that people would speculate about why I'd given a certain decision. Yeah. And I'd rather just be able to say it for myself. Yeah. Even if it meant... Just saying, look, I've made a mistake. Mm. That's all it is. I, you know, but the thing is, though, Howard, too many of those in, the, in, the, in, in a few months, perfectly normally, if you, weren't, if you weren't to say anything, if you start highlighting that, are you not being hoisted by your own petard anyway? Yeah, you are, absolutely. And that's another, that's another reason why it's difficult to do because there's only so many times that you can come out and say, made a mistake, made a mistake, yeah. Yeah, isn't there? You know, yeah. At the end of the day. Before you become Joe Hart. It, yeah, yeah. It just, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and poor Joe, I mean, you, know, you yeah. see the way that... Uh, that was unfair, actually, I didn't mean that. No, no, but, it's, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's, you know, it just, goalkeepers and referees are very similar, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can have a blinder for 89 minutes and, no and make knows. a mistake yeah. and you become the villain. Absolutely. Make, yeah, have yeah. a blinding game, making mm. great decisions. You make one bad decision in the last minute, you're a villain. If you're centre forward, you miss lots of chances, have a poor 89 minutes, score the winner, you're a hero. So, you know, it's very similar in, in many ways. So, but yeah, you're right, it, it is difficult. But just on some occasions, and I say some, I wouldn't want like it to be um, as a matter of routine, but on some occasions, I think there's an opportunity for the referee to come out and speak, just as a guy who's uh, employed professionally to do a job to come out and just say, this is why I gave this decision, or. You know, this this is how this looked at the time. I've seen it back, and it looks different. Mm. Yeah, hold the hands up sometimes and mm. say, you know, it's just a mistake. I I wanted to do it. I'd, I'd made a really a poor call to give a penalty to to to, to Manchester United against Tottenham. It was a mistake it, on pitch level. It just looked like Herelio Gomez had clearly clattered into Michael Carrick. Yeah. From a through ball from Rooney, which had taken me a long way from the play. It was a lovely ball. I was in a good position, but the ball had quality about it. It cut the defence. It also put me out of position. I, I, I 
managed to see that Carrick got onto the end of the ball first with his left foot and then got wiped out by Gomez. That's the way it looked. Straightforward penalty appeal. Straightforward decision. Gave the penalty. When you watch it from an aerial view, you can see, yeah, Carrick gets his foot on the ball, but then Gomez gets blindsided to me, the other side of Carrick, yeah. get a big glove on the ball and push it out for a, for a throw-in. I couldn't, I couldn't appreciate that sequence from the from the pitch level. I give the penalty. Gut feeling told me I got it wrong. I wanted to come out afterwards and say, "Look, can I just say what I saw at the time and yeah. how it played out?" Just to give people an understanding. Yeah, it will kill the argument. Instead, no, couldn't say anything. And instead, it was like, "Oh well, you know, why is he giving that? What is he giving it for this? Is he giving it for that?" Mm. You know, um, it just rumbled on. It rumbled on, and I just wanted to kill the argument by saying, "Look, guys, I've seen it again. It's a mistake." So I wasn't going to bring this in just yet, but I will do now in light of what you've just said. Um, the video technology question, which is inevitably going to be asked by someone like me, of someone like you, um, would you have um, appreciated or been in favour of that area of you you just mentioned being available at the time for that to be overturned? Or do you think that's a precedent we shouldn't set in football and video technology should stay out of the game as far as possible? I, I think we're at a stage now where um, some sort of trial of a of a, a, like a video system is pretty inevitable and I would support it. Okay. I would support it. And I think that I'm... Uh, For all decisions? No, no. I, 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 we'll, we'll delve into that. But I think that I, I hold a common view with the other referees or most of them. I'm not mm. canvassed opinion. I don't know. But I've got a strong feeling that if I'd have phoned Anthony Taylor on on the an hour before the game, mm. uh, Liverpool against Manchester United, if I'd have phoned him and said, Anthony... We can give you video technology tonight. I can come and sit in a van, watch all the angles, be in communication with you, and I can help you get things right. Mm. Would you Would you take it or not? I'm pretty sure he'd say absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I'd love it. Um, but would he take it because the pressure is so high and the, and the lack of support for referees at the top level in the media and in punditry among other people is so absent that you guys feel you needed it? Because, or, or is it because it genuinely would make the game better? Because my concern with it would be that Football is reliant on its popularity, and its popularity is based on its simplicity. And the moment we start bringing that stuff in, I know, I know, inevitably it's going to happen, as you rightly said. You know, there will be a trial, and it will come in, whatever happens. But just, is there not merit in the argument to suggest that actually it should stay as simple as it can be, and we should give more support to referees when they make mistakes, rather than bring video technology into it for, to to essentially solve a problem that we've created ourselves? That, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? That would be really nice mm. if you could say it's just human error. Just get yeah. on with it, accept it. It's just an acceptance. But unfortunately, I don't think we're in that position. And I don't think we're going to get to that position. I think, if anything, it's going to go the other way. I think there's an expectation that, that you know, um, the, the cause will be right. And because there's big, big, big rewards and because there's high pressure and analysis and scrutiny and more and more column inches and, 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 and website pages are being filled by football talk. Um, I, I've seen I've seen the way it affects people, football. I've seen the way that, you know, I was on a flight a few weeks ago and I was sat next to an off-duty airline pilot and we're talking about aviation and, mm. you know, and he'd been, he'd been, he'd been to a, a, on a simulator course and um, chatting away and, um, you know, everything's nice and intelligent, articulate, um, mature human being. And then we got talking about football. And honestly, I thought, I thought, he's, I thought he'd gone to the toilet and his twin brother had yeah, come back. I, I recognise that. Do you know I what I mean? That, it's yeah. like, he's it's, it's coming out with random loony statements. It's just yeah. like, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, all referees hate this club. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah we all never get rubbish referees. Oh, yeah, they clearly hate us. And I'm thinking, what's happened to this sensible guy who, who you know, who flies planes? Yeah. Um, it, it, I understand you. mean, my, 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 a really good friend of mine is a lawyer, uh, really well respected, works in, in the city. Um, very articulate, interesting man. As soon as you start talking about Liverpool, he, he he's, he's like a, he's a different person. He, oh, no. he says to me, he was said to me over after a couple of beers after Liverpool lost the Champions League final in 2007. Seven, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the worst night of my life. This is the worst <laughs> night of my life. Yeah, it's like there's no perspective, is there? I know. So, I like it in some ways. I like that people care so much. The passion is is, is what what endears you to it in the first instance, isn't it? Exactly. And I, I I I see that in myself. I'll go to a game. I'll watch Rotherham United, and and I'll be in the in the stand, and I'm giving some stick to the ref. I'm thinking, what am I doing? And I think I hope he, I hope he doesn't see me. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And then and then like a day later, I will think, what was I doing? You know what I mean? I'll calm down again. Do but you find yourself having to explain decisions in the crowd to people? Oh, they're always pointing at me. Or or, or what's that for, Webby? Or <laughs> they, they know where my allegiance lies as a, as, a, as a club, as a, as a fan of Rotherham. But 
But and then if I'm shaking my head, I put my head in my hands after a decision. It gets tweeted. Even Howard Webb thinks that's a shocker. <laughs> so you know you've got to be careful about your body language. But I get carried away with the moment as well. So but so I, I don't think we're going to get close to a position where people just accept it as a no. as a mistake. When football was invented back in the late 1800s. The rules were drawn up to assist in giving some sort of order to it, yeah. to assist in the enjoyment of the participants, so it wasn't just a free-for-all. Mm. But it wasn't meant to be so serious. No. I mean? and, and there was a guy put in the middle who was expected to try to control it. It's called the referee because, well, actually, at one time, the clubs would bring their own their own people to, to arbitrate arbitrate the a game. A lot of things would be decided by committee, wouldn't yeah, they? Ex- like exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and then the referee was somebody that, if the two... If the two if the two umpires that the clubs brought to the game, there was two umpires, one from each club on the pitch, and they would they would make calls. And if they disagreed, they they decided that they would have to refer it to another person. So he stood on the edge of the pitch. He would be the referee. Right. They I would see, refer okay. things to him mm. for a final call. Mm. Then they thought, okay, we'll get rid of the club umpires. We'll put him onto the pitch himself, and he can be the sole arbiter. Yeah. So that's where referee came, referees come from. But I mean, it wasn't meant to be this serious. Mm. Um, now it is serious, but the tools that the referee have are not really that much different to what they were back in, no, in the day. So, point, yeah, so, so, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a supporter of trials, not because I say, yeah, this is the answer, but just because I think we need to move the argument forward. I think any time you get a big call that's wrong, that's consequential, I think we'll go back to, oh, well, why have we not got video technology? Yeah. I think, I think that the reason Anthony Taylor would want it is because it would give him reassurance. It would give him reassurance that he's not going to make a humdinging mistake mm. that could be life, sorry, career-changing So you could him. even envisage it not even necessarily being used if it's not needed to be used. Well, well I, I Because mean, I, the problem is, I guess it depends how it's implemented. If, if Anthony Taylor makes a, a terrible decision, will he get a buzz on his ear and, and be told? Or, or I mean, Well, this is the crux of the matter, isn't it? Mm. So, so having accepted that it's coming, in a trial basis at least... You've then got to think, and I think we have to accept that, you, you then have to think, right, how are you going to do it? What are you going to look at? What type of situations? When are you going to look at them? And who's going to instigate that look? So the three options as I see in terms of how the, the review is going to be instigated is either you simply give the coach or the captain, like a DRS system in cricket, yeah. the opportunity to, to appeal, to ask for a review on a situation and... He can do that maybe two times a half, and he keeps the review if it, if it's turned turned out to be correct. It's not, is that not chaos though? Is this just not chaos? It could be until we try yeah. it. We don't know. It could be. It could be used tactically, can't it? As well, of yeah. course. So that's an option. It's quite a simple one, really. Um, you've still got the question of when does that review take place? Yeah. Because if it's for a penalty appeal and the, the referee referees, if they've got doubt, they won't give a decision. If they've got doubt about a penalty, they won't give it, and that means quite often the ball will stay alive. Yeah. So you need a level of certainty to give a penalty. And if you've not got that level of certainty, you'll wave it away. Now, if you wave it away and it immediately, the ball immediately goes out for a goal kick or a corner or gets wellied out for a throw-in, then you've got a chance to look yeah. at it. But actually, it could stay alive for another five minutes. If they got the other end of the score. Exactly. So at what point do you review it? Now, is it at the next stoppage when an all manner of things could have happened in that time? Mm. Is it that the, the, the manager is allowed to call timeout on the play at that moment... And the play stops, but that could to, that could prevent a counter attack, couldn't it? Mm. When when you know they're out of balance. See my initial point though. This is essentially <clears throat> removing the game from the simplicity of its of its roots of where people fall in love with it in the first instance. And I, I, now I feel like I, I do. Whenever I talk about this, I feel like I sound like this luddite guy who just wants everything to be back to what it used to be like. And I don't mean it in that way. I just mean that it, football's in danger of of eating itself. We talked about this a second ago. You talked about how it was never supposed to be this serious. For me, it is quite serious. It's too serious, probably, now. And this is just another step along the line for that. And I, I, I fear that, that it's not actually going to solve anything. It's just going to serve to change the game as we know it. And fine, we might get 100% of decisions right. But on the other hand, so, so what? Yeah, you know, and, and you'll never get to 100% decisions right because... But you guys already get 96 so much, right anywhere. Yeah, I mean, they do okay. But, I mean, there's, there's so much subjectivity as well. So what you think is the right decision and what I think might mm. be two different things. So, you know, and you still... So if you, if, if you move on to the next uh, sort of uh, instigation of, of review, could be the on-field referee who asks for something to be checked. Well, you know, sometimes you don't even know something's happened. No. You know, it can be a blindside handball that you don't even think needs looking at because you're not That's aware it. anything's yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it might be a yellow card offence that looks like a bog-standard yellow card. You, 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 you stop the game, you give a yellow card, and you know just from a few more degrees of angle, it opens up and you see, my goodness, that's a red card. 
oh, I've missed it. It used to happen to me. I'd come home and I'd put Match of the Day on and think, how have I not seen that? It's a red card now. I haven't seen it again. It's a TV <laughs> red card, we call them. Right, okay. So, so, so that's a problem because then basically the referee would play it safe and, and get everything reviewed yeah. to, to make sure he'd miss nothing. Or you get the guy in the van, like the job I do with BT Sport, and he can just be monitoring the game. But then you've got problems with that as well because what do you check? You check every corner of goal kick because corners can lead to goals. Yeah. This is, what I, this is my thing. It's my complicated. Point. And people who think it's not don't understand don't understand the intricacies yeah. of the situation. Yeah. And there's loads of them. All I would say is let's move the argument forward by trialing it. And if we can find a system which is palatable which and, and which crucially doesn't change the basic fabric and the way the game is played, then and and that actually benefits the game, then it's worth embracing. One thing I really wanted to, when I found that I was going to be talking to you, I really wanted to ask you was, a lot of people say, when we have listeners who listen to our show and they ask us questions about different parts of football and refereeing and stuff like that, one thing that always comes up from fans is how Premier League players can seemingly get away with shouting and swearing in the face of referees and officials without any sort of consistent punishment. And, and, I, and I've seen... I don't want to sort of name individuals, but I've seen individual players screaming and shouting, clearly swearing in the in the general area and proximity of the referee in their direction yeah. and not been punished for doing so. Now, when I played football at a very poor level, you couldn't get away with that. You couldn't even really get away with swearing in the same area without getting a huge punishment. Do you know why referees are so reluctant to implement any sort of punishment for that? I think a few things I would I would say about that. First of all is um, I've seen the same things as you. I've seen players um, get away with stuff on the field that, when stronger action should have been taken. Um, I've been guilty of that myself, um, of, of accepting too much. Um, and I've also I've also heard swearing on local fields as well. Yeah. Um, some of that is down to the power of example. Local mm. players will see that um, will see that swearing has, has happened on the on the professional game and, and tried it themselves. I, I, I used to get that quite a lot from local level refs. You know, it's like um, you know, why do you allow it? And I'd say, well, listen, I've, I've heard it on local levels as well. But um, I think there's two or three things at play here. One is that when the camera zooms in on the player. It's not always clear and obvious to see exactly where the player is, where the referee is, how much, how obvious it would be to the ref. So, what having acknowledged openly that it sometimes does happen and referees don't take action, sometimes the referee doesn't actually see it in the way you might see it on TV. Right. So you don't hear it, you don't see it. You've already turned your bike. There might be a long distance between the player and the referee, even though on TV it's not that and obvious. It's loud there as well. Exactly. So you don't hear it quite so clearly. That's that's offering up a defence for some some situations, but not all. And I totally believe in being candid. I've tried to be as candid as I can in the book as yeah, well. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that um, the pressure that the game brings but weighs heavy on the ref. So I think sometimes there's a feeling that you shouldn't overreact and that actually it might be probably easy, easier, easier to turn a deaf ear or mm. blind eye because when you send somebody off in a Premier League game, it's a big decision mm. and it it creates a controversy that referees are always keen to avoid. They're always keen to avoid controversy. You know, if you send a player off, that's a big talking point and you don't want to be the talking point. You know, referees don't want to be the centre of attention. If you take a strong line on that, you're going to become the centre of attention. So you're trying to balance that against making sure you do your job properly and knowing that the power of, of example is strong and that there's an expectation that you will deal with players. But sometimes, I don't like to use the word bottle it, but I've probably bottled it in big games mm. early on. Somebody's maybe said something and, and I've thought, God, is there an option to manage that? Should I? Cristiano Ronaldo, I booked him once for a foul in a Manchester derby at the Etihad for a foul on Sean Wright Phillips. And as I showed him the yellow card, he sarcastically applauded me. Mm. And the respect programme had just come in. And it put me in a position because, by right, I should have sent him off for a second mm. yellow card there. Why didn't you do so? Probably just the feeling that, probably the feeling that, or the fear that maybe I wouldn't be totally supported by the game. Yeah. It, it would be seen as an overreaction. It would be seen as, I didn't want to be a martyr. Mm. I, I didn't want to be a martyr oh, to the cause. Was that all going through your head at the time? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't want to be a martyr to the cause. I didn't want to send him off and then... 
abused because I'd overreacted or mm. was, there an, was, was there an opportunity to just manage that, give him a strong warning? Was that a better outcome for the spectacle of the game? Because this is, this is 15 minutes into a Manchester derby where thousands of people have, have come to the game, spent good money to watch 22 of the best players mm. and here I am sending him off. It's his fault. I'm taking, I'm taking sort of like, I'm taking too much onto my shoulders there. Yeah, because you're just the agent of, of the implementation of the laws of the game, right? I mean, yeah. You should, that should, and I understand why it does, and I don't, I don't mean to denigrate you for taking that decision, but for me, it just seems a little bit sad that you have to worry about that. And really, if the yellow card that you gave out for the foul was, was presumably a straight yellow as well, and that was, that was non-controversial, yeah, it's, it seems... It seems a bit sad for the game as a whole that you can't feel that like you can do your job properly because of that situation. But that's the pressure that's the the, the, the monster of the game. You talked about the, yeah. the game being a bit of a monster. I mean, it, it, the monster of the game creates that situation, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, now, what the, the way we can deal with that is I think it's happened a little bit this year. In the pre-season, the stakeholders got together and, and looked at a couple of issues of the game. The stakeholders being usually the PFA, the LMA, the league managers, the professional footballers, yeah. the the referees, the league competitions themselves and the FA and they've looked at what areas of the game can be improved upon and holding in the penalty area is one but also yeah. descent. So the the referees were told not to turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to play a behaviour that's less than acceptable these days, you know, to front it up and the clubs were visited and the managers and the players were told in no uncertain terms, look, if you step out of line, our referees have been told to deal with you in a firm way and so far we've had eight rounds in the Premier League and we've had a, I think 45 yellow cards for dissent right, okay. in eight rounds last year in 38 rounds we had 60 so we're almost it's at the same now. number and it's happening and I think player behaviour has been quite good this year but what I have seen is players who step out of line if you look at Harry Arter for Bournemouth he, um, he got sent off at West Ham two yellow cards one was for a clear um, foul which denied a promising attack like a tactical foul the first one was for dissent and to be fair to Eddie Howe he came out and fronted up on camera later and said we were told before the season that if we stepped out of line we'd be punished mm. Harry stepped out of line he should have known better he deserved the yellow card mm. and that led to the to the red card we've no complaints that's what you need isn't it and that's what you need it yeah. was rammed down the throat so I feared that they would ease off a little bit when, when things get harder when they haven't done when, when referees you mentioned earlier about the one with Ronaldo. You said, if it's a clear yellow card, the first one, you, you couldn't see why I wouldn't follow it through. I, mm. I, I can take your point on that. Because yeah. another time when referees don't follow it through is when they feel they've made a mistake and they don't want to compound it. So imagine a situation where in the second minute of the game, there's a shot on goal. It's blocked on the line by a defender. The referee blows a whistle and sends him off mm. because he's from his position, he's seen him block the ball with a hand mm -hmm. an arm. Mm. And therefore, it's a penalty and a red card. The reaction that he gets from every other player on that team is there's something more to this. Yeah, He's probably got a bad angle. He's probably just overreacted. He's misread it. He's not focused. Whatever reason, he's failed to see the fact that actually he cleared it with his head and not the arm. Mm. In the absence of other information, he can't turn that decision around. He's going, to act, he's going to have to follow it through and send the player off. This is two minutes into the game. A player comes up and says, "That's an effing disgrace, referee. That's yeah. a, that's a, that's a whatever he might say yeah. that would be that you would see on your TV through lip reading or whatever that you could tell is foul language." That referee needs bloody big balls, doesn't he, to send him off, or stupidity to send him off and put that team down to nine men on after two minutes on the back of a decision that he's yeah. made. Can you put yourself in the shoes of the referee and understand why you would, of course, why you would turn absolutely. a blind eye or deaf ear to, of to that situation? In that situation, one hundred percent, I think I can understand it generally. Anyway, yeah. I just think that um, I get, it's not your fault. I don't think it's your fault. I, I think that, I think that you have to you have to implement the laws as you see fit, and it's the player's responsibility to. We're, we're going to talk about your Annus Mirabilis two thousand and ten anyway, so. Yeah, when you refereed the Champions League final and the World Cup final the same year, you talk about that in great detail in, in the book. You talk about the, the the famous Nigel de Jong decision, and and you say you're very candid and very honest about it. And you actually talk about the World Cup final in quite a touching way, and I, I really enjoyed reading it. But you say very clearly on the Nigel de Jong thing, you didn't you didn't see it, you didn't have the right angle. But moreover, you said that you felt like you handled the game well, and I felt the same. But people were on your back because of the way the players acted, not because of the way you officiated. Because yeah. people people always say at the beginning of games, oh, don't, don't, we don't want to see the referees bring the cards out too early. And I understand that. And you say in the book as well, in other places, you know, if you can get your first yellow out halfway through the first half, you know you've got control of the game. That's a nice time to do it. Um, but you obviously always can't 
can't always do no, that. No, no, so no. you must have been incredibly frustrated coming out of the back of the World Cup final, thinking that could have gone better, obviously, but it's <laughs> yeah. not really, it's not really your fault. I mean, I watched the game in, in a Johannesburg fan park where there's a huge amount of passion for the for the game, and and we all saw the um, the Nigel de Young sort of kung fu kick a hundred times on the massive hundred foot big screen. You didn't get a chance to see it like that. No. So. It's just, it's just a bit a bit of a shame, really, that you're held responsible and have to change your behaviour and the way you officiate a game because of the way the players behave. Yeah, and 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 you know, with that, with that particular game, we we went in, in in a way that we thought was prepared. I mean, we did all the usual um, um, sessions before the game, technical sessions, psychological sessions. We'd had physical training, of course, and, and nobody nobody all of the expertise in FIFA. We had we had a session from uh, the technical study group talking about the uh, the way they, they thought the game would pan out. Mm. Um, we spoke to the sports psychologist. Nobody said this is going to be a kicking match. Nobody expected that. I suspected it might not be a beautiful game because I can't remember many beautiful World Cup finals. But and the Dutch with that type of team but, as well. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, they got some players in there who could put the foot in, but you know, but they could play. Really tidy football as well, mm. couldn't they? You know what I mean, with real pace and purpose. And and um, and the Spanish, of course, were renowned for their for their exquisite type of tiki tacky football. But but you know, we never thought it'd be that sort of a game. And and I went in thinking, okay, stay calm, understand that the the final might affect players a little bit uh, because of what's at stake. Don't overreact, but do the job you sent there to do. You all the usual thoughts that you have mm. before a game. You know what I mean? And and I I. Tried to go through a range of 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 tactics to to gain or maintain control of the game, and and it was far from perfect. I mean, if I'd just seen that as a match report after the game and seen there being fourteen yellow cards, I can't help but think that would have suggested that the game was out of control. Um, and there were periods in that game where I feared it might go out of control, but I think we clung on to it. And and you know, early in the game, there's a tackle. I think I put it in the book by Van Persie, which is a strong yeah, tackle. And, a I, nice I, piece that, yeah. and I warn him. I warn him in the way that I thought was the right thing to do, because I thought, you know, if I go straight in with a yellow card in the, se- I tell you what would have happened if I had gone in with a yellow card after two minutes, bang, yellow card. I think it would have given the for a tackle that was within the range of mm. uh, manageability, not one of those where you've got no choice but to mm. yellow card. Then I think there would have been a suggestion that I was nervous, that I overreacted, yeah. that I was. That was too hot to go to the card. Where else can I go now? So but you mentioned at that point, you say you'd refereed Robin Van Persie a number of times before that, and normally he was quite a malleable, perfectly reasonable guy. And you said there was a change in him at that moment. He, he seemed different somehow at that moment. He didn't acknowledge the yellow card. Um, oh, sorry, the, the the word of advice. He didn't acknowledge the word of advice. Normally, I'd have a word. He'd tap me on the shoulder and say, "Okay, Howard, no yeah. problem." There was no engagement from him at all. No. Do you know what I mean? Was, um, that was that not a situation that he was just so focused? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely, I think he was. He was that focused. And and when you speak to Bert van Marwijk later, I mean, Bert works in the same building as I do now in uh, in Saudi Arabia, mm. uh, and he's doing pretty well with the national team there. But you know, he, he'll say that there was no pre-planned um, um, tactic to go and be really brutally, you know, aggressive. Mm. He said, you know, the players. Took it upon themselves to, to to respond in the way that they did, um, and um, and that's what you know. That's again maybe what happens in a, in a, in a an occasion of such magnitude. And, and these players are so close to becoming legends, aren't they? I mean, the English sixty yeah, six team is still mm. revered, and yeah. you know all these fifty years on. Um, so it's going to change their lives as, as well. So you know, it, it, but you're right. It's down to the players, but the referee is there. The referee is there to to manage what's presented to, to him. And if you're at the top of your game, you should have the mental now and, and uh, agility and, and emotional intelligence to be able to adjust your style to cope. And and did we were we successful in that way? Not totally. Did we did we manage to bring the game to a conclusion that was relatively I don't know, satisfactory is the wrong word, but that that was was the game intact at the end. It was we did the best you could. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure that anybody else would have done things different. I mean, we could easily have had two red cards in the first half. Mm. De Jong should have gone, for sure, yeah. with a different eye-viewing angle. Um, were, were the, what were the players... Were the, I mean, the Spanish players, of course, were very annoyed, I remember at the time, but was their reaction giving you any sort of indication that you were you were wrong to give them a yellow card then? Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I, I say this in the book as well, at no point did it cross my mind that that should be a red. Mm. It wasn't like... I know, because you, you do say very clearly you didn't have the angle, you wouldn't have done anything yeah. different. But, but, I mean, just the player's reaction, because you mentioned so, earlier about uh, sometimes players go yeah. very, very honestly react like that. And you, you learn, you learn to, lead, to, to read play, genuine play reaction 
a lot as a referee. You learn to read it and, and it helps to guide you. And I don't want to mislead people by saying all those reactions that players orchestrate, you can tell the difference between a natural reaction. Yeah. If you know something's a red card and you show a red and the players react... Or, they're or, going through the motions, aren't they? They're, they're, they're they playing do. to the crowd. They do. Anything, they yeah. do. You can tell the difference, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and, but you get a feeling based on those natural reactions. And, and the Spanish players were angry at that point, but, but I thought they were angry for a couple of reasons. One is because... I thought it's yet another physical challenge, mm. which is pretty strong. I'd, I'd had some yellows already. I also even I even thought they wanted an advantage playing because <laughs> right, the ball okay. drove, the ball was headed on by Xabi Alonso and it went to David Villa, who was in quite a bit of space in a good position to go mm. forward. And I penalised, and a couple of players pointed towards David Villa. A couple of the Spanish players, and I thought they obviously want advantage, but I thought I can't. Play well, advantage. maybe they did. Maybe they did. Maybe, but but. But knowing the Spanish players as I do, they would be quick to point out physical play. Yeah. They would. More so than in the Premier League. Yeah. More so than in the Premier League. And, and, and you know, I, I think there was also a reaction born out of the fact that it was there was some physicality to the challenge. But that said, yeah, I, I never, I was never close to going, to going red. Simply because I just didn't have a view. I didn't see the point of contact. I saw it from over the shoulder of Alonso. You can see it on the video, which made me think, yeah, that's late and it's forceful. But, that's what it is. It's reckless. Yeah. I didn't realise it. In, it actually involved the the studs. It's a strange thing, really, because he's not straight legged. He kind of like puts his foot up, and and Alonso comes into his foot, and bend, and 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 De Jong De Jong's leg bends as, as Alonso comes in to head the ball. Alonso does nothing wrong, of course, but um, but it's such a weird thing to mm. to put your foot up in that position. It it probably took, caught me by surprise as well. Yeah, I mean, you talk about with great affection about obviously getting the opportunity to, to referee the World Cup final. You talk about the atmosphere and, and, and how great it was to be there and be a part of it. And I just wonder, is it, I mean, looking back on it now, do you still feel very, obviously you feel very proud and it's a great part of your life, your professional life and your personal life, but is there a bittersweet element to it because of the way the game went? Um, do you, did, but, but do you mean, do you think you could have done better or do you think that it was just you, you had to play the hand you were dealt on that day? Oh, God, you, you've probably nailed, you hit, hit, hit about eight nails on the head there right. in one go. Um, do I do I think I could have done better? Yes, of course. Do I think that I would I would I did fairly well with the hand that was dealt to me? Yes, I do. Um, do I feel? Uh, no, no, if I if I was to say I felt cheated, that people would just overreact to that because yeah. what's how can a referee feel cheated about <laughs> yeah, World Cup yeah. finally? I mean, yeah. it, it wasn't my game; it was the players' game. It was the the the, the, uh, the that of the club. I feel disappointed that when I reflect on what should have been. The, the the clear highlight of my career it's tainted it's tainted because of the type of game it is and and there's a, there's a, a journalist up in South Yorkshire uh, used to work for the Sheffield Star a good friend of mine called Les Payne and, and I came back and I spoke to Les when I got back as a, as a football writer and um, and he he gave this analogy and I kind of like can relate to it he said it's a bit like it's a bit like um, um, there's, there's a woman who's getting married in a few weeks time and you know every Saturday in the build-up to the wedding is beautiful, glorious sunshine in this heat wave. Mm. And then her wedding day comes along, her Saturday to get married, and it absolutely pours it down all right. day. Yeah, yeah. And she's still got the photos to say she got married, and she still enjoyed it, and she still went through with it and everything. That, but just something took the shine off it, mm. and she'll always remember it. It absolutely poured it down when she came out of the mm. church, absolutely, and she got wet through. Mm. And it was like with me, you know what I mean? Yeah, I've got the pictures to say that I, I did it and I've got the medal and, you know, I can think about the great Saturdays in the week in the build-up to it, the games that we did. Um, but there is something that takes a shine off that final and that's why when people say, what is your highlight? I'll say, well, the biggest honour was the World Cup final but the highlight was 50 days earlier the in the final. Champions League final which was exactly this type but of game. But you refereed that game particularly well though. I mean, everyone said that. But it, but it, wasn't, it wasn't a game which presented the challenges that the, that the, the, the World Cup final presented. Yeah. I was able to be anonymously competent. There was a, pay, a, a part of that game on about 70 minutes after Melito had scored his second goal into Milan where I could look, there was a, a small break in play. I was able to look around the stadium and absorb it and think, yes, I've got this game in my pocket. Thanks, Howard. Thank you so much for saying Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.